married to a therapist. So uh, I'm, <laughs> I'm all about communication. We've been married for 30 years. And, um, you know, communication is really big in our household. You know, Being married to a therapist could be a podcast episode in its exactly own. Exactly <laughs> right. I keep joking that, that I was her only client for a long time. And now I'm just one of her clients among yeah. them. Um, but it's great because, and, and you know, communication is such a simple thing. It's, it's like, oh, that's common sense. Of course, it's important to have good communication. But you'd be amazed by how many organizations that I talk to, CEOs and, and others, that you know, shy away from it or feel like, well, if I if I show my vulnerability or if I talk to an employee about a non-work related issue, you know, it's gonna it's gonna you know show my weakness or come across as being weak. What's up, everybody? Armand here, back with another episode. Today's guest, we have Ken Schmidt, who's the CEO and founder of Turning Point Executive Search. Ken has such a great insight on hiring and retaining talent. Uh, Turning Point is an executive recruiting firm, and we talk a lot about the current generational differences going on while recruiting. Uh, We talk about how founders can improve relationships with their employees and actually retain them. Uh, We talk about a little bit in his day, kind of like reactive versus proactive parts of your day. And for fun, Ken is a big movie buff. He owns about 600 DVDs. And this just in, I found out they're still making DVDs. Thank you for listening. I really hope you enjoy this episode of the Play Hard Podcast. Work hard, play hard, work hard, play hard, work hard, play hard. All right. Without further ado, Ken, how's it going? How's your day starting off? Good, good. Yeah. Thanks for having me today. It's been a good day so far. Very productive. Yeah, I'm glad. And thanks for coming on. Hopefully we keep that productive flow going. This is for the listener, Ken Schmidt. He's the CEO and founder of Turning Point Executive Search. Uh, And I recently found out that his brother-in-law was my AP world history teacher. So (laughs) random connections out here. Very small world in San Diego. (laughs) Very small world. Uh, Ken, so so what exactly is Turning Point Executive Search and how did it come to be? Um, Yeah, so we are a recruiting company. It's kind of in in basic uh, vernacular. I've been recruiting now for 25 years. Uh, I went to college here in San Diego at USD. I grew up in San Diego and uh, inland in Rancho Bernardo, but started recruiting 25 years ago. And I actually launched my firm, Turning Point Executive Search, 15 years ago, back in 2007, uh, just before the uh, the last really big uh, downturn pre-COVID, obviously. Uh, but as the name sounds, we do executive search, pretty much mid-level and senior level positions. So hmm. salaries of around 120000 on up from there. Yeah, and we have a pretty broad cross-section of industries, so it's, it's a lot of fun to learn a lot from different types of people, focusing on positions that are, you know, president, CEO, uh, a lot of operations and supply chain positions, and then we also do a lot of recruiting for marketing and sales roles also. One thing that I, I really comes to mind and stands out, what you're saying is, so you, so you do it by salary range, but that definitely changes, especially because you're in so many different industries, so many different companies. Uh, right. What is it like hunting for, I would say, a CEO or COO versus someone else with the exact same kind of salary range, but in a very different and not as high ranking title? Um, what is, what is kind of like that difference? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and, and the reason that we do uh, focus more on salary, that's kind of our, our kind of delineation is the salary is because we do so much in the way of sales. 
And there are a lot of people out there that are not leading a team. They're not running a company. Um, they're in what we call an IC individual contributor role, but they're making quite a bit of money. They might be making a salary of $200,000, uh, but total compensation is close to half a million and yeah. they're not leading a team because they are so good at selling very high level enterprise type software or SaaS yeah. systems or what have you, technology. I so, see that in cybersecurity. It's a, yeah, it's a really good AI, AI, data analytics, you know, all of that is, is very, very high demand right now. And so, so we go by salary. So it, it's really, it's a good question you ask. It's really focused more on the, the uh, components of the position. And that dictates how we screen somebody and, and really how we find people also. So a CEO position, for example, the conversation is around, okay, so what is the run rate, the revenue projections for the organization? What's the corporate backing? Is it bootstrapped? Is it backed by a venture capital firm or private equity? Is it owned by a family, maybe second or third generation, right? Um, what, is, what does that look like? What is the equity component as a CEO? Do I get to actually own two, three, five, 10% of the company where I can actually participate in that, that yeah. growth? For an individual sales person making you know, half a million dollars, their whole conversation is around, okay, what am I selling? Who are What's the customers? What's my comp plan? Yeah, who am I? Yeah, what, who are the customers <laughs> selling to? Do the customers even know who we are? Are we starting from scratch? Or do we have a brand name? And, and show me that path. Show me that runway to get to half a million dollars because I'm already making that right now in my current company. So why should I leave to do the same thing somewhere else? Interesting. And, and what are reasons that people do leave? Cause that is, I mean, if you are yeah. already, cause I know a big thing about the sales and sales team is your ramp up. It's right. it takes like about a year, a year and a half to actually get to, you know, where you could, where you already are, let's say. Right, exactly. um, so, exactly. so what, what doesn't incentivize them to leave? Yeah. So it's, we always talk that there, there's really five things that, that kind of dictate, you know, someone's decision to make a change. Uh, the difference from candidate to candidate is the order of those five things, right? So it's things like compensation, certainly. And with the, 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 the great resignation over the last couple of years, you know, compensation levels have been more front and center than they usually are because a lot of companies didn't do a very good job of, of maintaining their, their, their employees' compensation levels to match the marketplace. That's number one. Uh, number two is title, right? So I'm a director where I am right now. The VP above me is not going anywhere. And so there's not really much upward mobility where I am. So if I can go somewhere else and be elevated to a VP title, I'm going to consider that as well. Culture is really, really big. And this is good times, bad times, big yeah. companies, small companies. It doesn't matter. If I, we have this, we have this expression in recruiting that people join companies, but they leave managers. Yeah. I've, I've seen, heard that before. I've seen that play out time and time again in the last 25 years. So if you're working for a great company, but the person that you work for is just a, a real jerk. Right. Then you're going to probably leave that company and go somewhere else and hopefully work for somebody that's going to appreciate and acknowledge you as well. So that's the third thing. Uh, the fourth thing is benefits. And that's, again, becoming more front and center, especially for you know, the younger millennials and also Gen Z uh, folks out there. Employment is really or, uh, I'm sorry. Benefits is, is a really important component of your employment mental yeah. health, all those kind of things are really important also. Uh, and then beyond that, it's a matter of, you know, do I really believe in and am I excited about 
what about the company that I'm working for, the product or service that they offer. Uh, if, if I'm a scientist by background and I'm working for a biotech or a pharmaceutical company, that's fantastic, right? But maybe I'm working for a consumer packaged goods company and I'm not really that excited or passionate about it. And I want to find some other company that has more mission driven. So those are the five things that are always coming into play. Then you've got things like location and travel, you know, commuting, those kind of things. But those are not quite as important these days. You mentioned so much and that's, that's really helpful. I would have never expected, like there's so much that goes into it. And I totally agree. Uh, just to break a couple things down is number one, with the generational thing you mentioned, I actually wrote about this on LinkedIn. I very much agree that, um, so I'm on the older end of Gen Z 25. So like we're just starting to hit the workforce right. and I've been kind of saying, I don't know, I sometimes feel like a crying wolf here, but so I'm, I'm saying like there's an entirely new generation that's coming into the workforce. Like you can't treat us like millennials. We right. don't think the same. We don't act the same. Like I'm almost more millennial just because I grew up with the people I looked up to and like my older cousins and people that I saw right, like, right. they're millennials. But I like 97 is the first year of Gen Z. So like from yeah. me down is going to be a whole new different uh, I guess like perspective on work and right. on what they care about being hired like very yeah so it's very interesting that it feels as if the workforce has just kind of been like all right we we're figuring out these whole millennial things like, exactly, we, we got exactly. that down right, and then yeah. and then you got like a whole new generation coming up um yeah, I, have, I have i have two sons and uh, one is 25 was actually born in july of 97 so the same year as you as you as you're talking about yeah and he also depending upon the situation Will identify as as a as a very old you know a very I'm sorry very young millennial yeah right or an older totally you know, Gen Z so it just depends upon the situation but but you're right and I think you know one of the things I didn't mention which kind of fits into the whole uh, component of of culture is is diversity diversity is very is, true it's always been important it's been a big part of of my belief in recruiting for a long time but you know this gen your generation you know, diversity is, is, is front and center more so yeah. than ever before. And so companies that are not embracing that, that are not even thinking about, well, how diverse is our team, not just at the, at the you know, entry level ranks, but the executive level, do we have people of color? Do we have women in leadership, you know, uh, roles also, you know, how supportive are we of uh, the indigenous population or LGBTQ um, population as well? We need that, what I call diversity of thought. And, yeah. you know, I, and kudos to you and your generation and to my oldest son as well, because it's not changes won't happen until people start to ask about it. And as you get yeah. into leadership positions, you're going to drive that even further. Uh, what? Yeah, that what, the thing that I wrote about actually was the different like millennials are known as the job hopping generation, because when they first started entering the market was the recession and the 2008 yeah. bust. And that changed their view on loyalty because they saw people who were loyal their entire life just get fired right. like on the drop of a hat. So my generation is known as the activist generation because if you think about it, like even in the past, what, five to seven years, like the amount of in our formative, like middle school, high school, college <laughs> years, the amount of like social uh, movements that have gone on is so top of mind that when we are picking right. companies, we do it based on like, are they socially active or like align with our values. So exactly. I totally agree. agree. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I'm actually, I'm, I'm at the tail end of writing a book right now about being an entrepreneur and it's called the practical optimist, but I have a whole chapter dedicated to diversity and talking cool. about the fact that, 
you know, like it or not, embrace it or not, it's out there. You've got to talk about it. I mean, look at the example with Disney, for example, and what happened in Florida. Yeah, with, yeah, with that's a big one. Out there on education and the way that their CEO handled it or didn't handle it, the backlash that ensued. Then he went back and actually did, you know, come out against the law. And then, you know, the governor of Florida came out and went against him. So yeah, um, that's going to play out like, time and time again. Uh, or you've got people like Elon Musk that says, hey, you're in the office five days a week. If you're not here five days a week, at least 40 hours a week, then I consider you having resigned from Tesla, right? So, and that's that's going to impact younger people much more so than the older folks who are totally agree. kind of more loyal. I'm, I'm Gen X, right? We were the first, we're, we're the smallest generation of, of the last four or five, but we're also the, the most entrepreneurial. Right. We grew up yeah. in the 80s. There were some things that were going on socially, but we were kind of that first latchkey kid group. If yes. You yes. I, we had I, both I, parents that were working. We were left on our own. So if we don't like what we're seeing in the corporation that we're working for, we're going to say thanks, but no thanks and go off and probably start our own business or maybe start a couple of businesses. And so that, that more kind of entrepreneurial spirit is a big part of, of my generation as a Gen X. Yeah. And I totally see it. That's funny. You mentioned that is, um, my dad is also Gen X and he started his company because he was so tired of the corporate world and how he was being treated. And he was like, I'm gonna just do this on my own. And they have been like very successful over the past five years. Like it's truly been awesome to watch and like really fun journey. Uh, I was going through college and I was studying, first of all, he started a company while I was in college. That's pretty crazy. (laughs) Shout out to him. But I was, uh, I was looking, I I was studying entrepreneurship and it was very interesting to compare what I was learning and what was actually happening to my dad, how very different, like the book version is than the actual, but also how he was like breaking statistics. Like they, they should have it by all rights failed in the first few years, but they're going strong 50 employees now. So it's, it's really cool to see. Uh, yeah, Generation X, very entrepreneurial. Yeah, and one thing. So one th- also side note. Let me know when that book comes out because I want to promote it on the show. <laughs> sure. That's if it's for entrepreneurial, then I'm sure oh, the yeah. audience here would really appreciate it and enjoy oh, it. Thank you. I appreciate that. Thank you. Yeah. Um, yeah and but, I think, I mean, and to your point also about, you know, about starting a business and just being out there also and, and, and being willing to make a change. I, I, I wish there's more. I mean, I'm, I'm glad you had that experience with your dad, you know, your dad's experience versus what you saw in the theoretical yeah. classroom, right? But I wish there were more of those kind of partnerships. I'm, I'm a volunteer for Junior Achievement and they do an amazing job with different groups. Uh, and I actually volunteer, you know, at the high school that you went to. At yeah. And, nice. and, you know, we as mentors come in to the classroom, bring that corporate real world, you know, experience, the, the good and the bad, right? Uh, to complement what they're learning from the textbooks. And so I, I want there, I wish there, I, I hope there'll be more of that going forward uh, at high school, but also at college level. Because like you said, what you see in the textbook, a theoretical marketing campaign or social media strategy compared to what happens in the real world and how, how it's actually executed, um, it can be two you know, very different experiences. Yeah. Yeah, that is. And like another thing I, I learned in business school was there's, there's a lot of fundamentals and you hear it repeated online and LinkedIn, Twitter, everything, like what the fundamentals are, mm-hmm. but it's applying them is so different and so unique in every situation that like, that's one thing I really took is you could read someone's story and be like, wow, that is really awesome how that founder managed to go about it. But if I tried to steal that exact playbook, it's not going to work different times, different markets, different like world. Like it's just, it. it's very every, like, you know, the fundamentals, but they're applied differently. I think it's really cool that also you volunteer at CCA. That's 
Yeah, thanks. Yeah, it's, it's a lot of fun. I, I get a lot out of it. It's, it's wonderful. Yeah. There's, there's a great book that I read uh, maybe about 10 years ago, eight years ago called Small Giants. And to your point, right, there are so many folks that, that try to just emulate the 800-pound the gorillas in their industry. Mm. Let's all try to do what Facebook did, you know, 15 years ago. Let's all try to do what Oracle did or Microsoft or whatever it is. But uh, to your point, the reality is, you know, that model is not right for everybody. And this yeah. book, Small Giants, was, was the first time I had read a book that really kind of gave permission to small companies to decide to stay small, right? Because the, the antithesis of that, oh. what you always hear is, is, you know, grow or die. As if, yeah. if you're not doing all the time, then why even bother? Why even be in business, right? Um, but the reality is not every company is going to be a Microsoft. You know, the vast majority, two, over, over two-thirds of the jobs in this country, actually closer to 70% of the jobs in this country and GDP as well, comes from small businesses with, with you know, fewer than 500 employees and, you know, well under a billion dollars in revenue. And so there's a lot of great businesses out there that never go public they're not backed by a venture capital firm, and that's fine. They're doing very well. They're employing 50, 100, 500 people, whatever it is. Yeah. Uh, all of them like, to, like their jobs, and that's great. You don't have to grow or die. You can you know, set up your own structure, if you will, and your own game plan. Yeah, and I think what trips up a lot of people is they don't realize the, uh, the level of weight and responsibility that starts to pile on as that growth happens. Right. Um, not just within the company, but as we're talking socially, like, you have this really big machine that's making, you know, billions of dollars. You have, you're going to be seen as you have some sort of responsibility to put that money into use and help other people out. Or you're right. going to have to, um, like whatever it is, your output, let's say you're a, like e-commerce or some sort of store that's going to be causing a lot of waste. You're going to have to lower your carbon foot and, and it right. just gets bigger and bigger as, as you grow. So I totally see the, the option between, you know, some people yeah. just want to stay. Right, exactly. And to your point also, what we talked about before with the, with the different generations, you know, again, the, the, the younger millennials and then kind of the quote unquote older Gen Zs are the ones that are driving a lot of that conversation as well. Asking about what is your carbon footprint? You know, what are you doing mm -hmm. for the environment? You know, why are you using, you know, all of this, you know, non-recyclable product? Um, for your are you lead certified? Yeah, right. Or, or are you in the crypto space where it sucks up an enormous amount of energy for all of that, you know, that blockchain and all of that data mining? Um, people don't think about that. But these, yeah. you know, Costco sized server rooms that cost a fortune to keep cool and to keep running. That's a huge, you know, burden on the environment to power up all those, all those. Um, yeah, very true. So um, those are kind of things that I think are, are coming to the forefront now. More, more folks are asking about it. And now you mentioned culture, and I want to talk about a negative aspect of culture that also relates to the salary conversation we were talking mm -hmm. about earlier. Yeah. So there, there is this culture in corporate America where you don't talk about how much money you make. You don't talk mm -hmm. about your salary. You don't kind of like exchange, even with coworkers or friends. Like it's almost like icky to do that. Yeah, right, exactly. Um, how do you think that was done by companies so that they can kind of keep you down and not like need to bump up your salary as it goes on? Cause I have seen in yeah. some corporate companies that like they, they maybe they're not matching like an end of the year boost for inflation or like even times like now they're, they're still keeping normally salary raises where like the price of buying things is getting higher versus right. like, they're just still making the same money. So what, what do you, th what thoughts do you have on like the cultures of companies and how that relates to salary. Yeah, it's a, it's a really good discussion. We only could talk for three hours about that whole topic <laughs> by itself. But 
I think it's, if you take a step back, I think it really comes from a change in the relationship between employers and employees, right? You know, if you think about the current structure out there, uh, and I'm a, I'm a real fan of doing this kind of research, and I'm an, I was an econ major, so I love all the numbers. Yeah. But you know, if you look at the history of, of business, we have largely been living in an environment, in a, in a, in a corporate environment that was based on a manufa- manufacturing-centric you know, organ- or, or country, right, and, and landscape where people's work was synonymous with where you actually work, the physical space. And in that space, you were beholden to your employer. They, you know, people stayed for 20, 30 years. You got your, literally your gold watch or your gold pen at IBM, and then you, you know, yeah. went off to the sunset, right? And so part of that, that you know, um, Different uh, times. Un- un- kind of unstated, you know, contract was that you don't talk about things that are confidential, like compensation, or like, you know, pushing back on things or, hey, or, or even sexual harassment things. I mean, so much went on for so many years that people knew about, but everybody felt very, yeah. very um, uh, unwilling to talk about, you know, until things came up with Harvey Weinstein and everything else came up also with Richard Ailes as well. Yeah. Uh, yeah, uh, Roger Ailes. But anyway, um, so I think that that whole contract between employer and employee has changed. Along with that is the compensation conversation. And now with social media and with the web as well, you've got you know websites like Vault or like um, Glassdoor that are literally dedicated to blowing up that transparency and allowing you know employees to say, "I'm going to rate my company." And it's five stars, it's one star, yeah. and here's why. And I'm going to also tell you, here's what I'm making. Here's my compensation level. Here's what my peers are making. So that transparency has just gone through the roof. And employers that are trying to either avoid or ignore that or not address it are the ones that really suffer. And then they lose great people because they're not willing to bring their employees up to par where they should be in terms of the marketplace. So now tack on to that the entire you know, dynamic that was created by COVID over the last couple of years. Where the remote companies, and, and, and people forget that the unemployment rate was 3.5% pre-COVID. We were already in this, what we call our war for talent, was already happening in 2019. Then 2020 hit and everything got thrown out the window. The, all the trend lines you know, were, were, were removed, if you will, were negated. Yeah. Um, and then things went to kind of crazy to the negative side. Then last year came, and then the trend lines were also blown up again, but now to the upside. And t- companies were hiring like crazy, right? And so demand went through the roof. There were a lot fewer people that were in the workforce because of COVID or folks that had passed away or you know, um, caring for, for aging uh, parents, those kind of things. So that drove prices up, right? And everybody, everybody hired, so that drove demand up. And a lot of companies didn't realize coming into 2022 that their current workforce is now 15, 20% below the new market. And they only find out when their, you know, their, their top players you know, leave the company. And so we've seen a huge uptick in the number of counter offers that are being given to candidates to employees that are leaving the company and substantial numbers. So usually you'd get a counter offer of around, you know, stay with us, we'll give you a 10% increase. You know, that was typical pre-COVID. Yeah, now yeah. we're seeing multiple examples of counter offers that are 15, 20, even 40% higher if that employee will stay put and not quit. So wow. it's, it's a lot of different factors working together, but all that has driven the increase in compensation. And then again, that transparency around what my compensation is, and it's being shared everywhere. It feels like a lot of that transparency has been made possible through anonymity. Like a lot of people, especially in the beginning, didn't yeah. want to share who they were. 
um, it seems like. Uh, yeah. So, mm-hmm. so what are some things founders can do to improve relationships with employ, like the employer and employee relationships, so that there is no need for that anonymity? If something's wrong, they can just talk about it, and yeah. they can they can be transparent. What are things founders can do for transparency in a company? Yeah, that's that's a fantastic question, and and I'll I'll, I'll you know put it aside here. I'm married to a therapist, so uh, I'm, <laughs> I'm all about communication. We've been married for 30 years, and um, you know communication is really big in our household. You know, personally. being married to a therapist could be a podcast episode, and exactly own. right. I keep joking that that I was her only client for a long time, and now I'm just one of her clients among yeah. Them. Um, but it's great because, and, and I'm, you know, communication is it's such a simple thing. It's, it's like, oh, that's common sense. So of course, it's important to have good communication. But you'd be amazed by how many organizations that I talk to, CEOs and, and others, that you know shy away from it or feel like, well, if I if I show my vulnerability or if I talk to an employee about a non-work related issue, you know, it's gonna it's gonna you know show my weakness or come across as being weak. And so a lot of a lot of leaders still try to keep that that armor of of infallibility on yeah. time, uh, and that you know that creates a lack of communication. So to your question, the easiest thing and the least expensive thing that any leader can do, CEO or otherwise, to to retain their good talent is to talk to them. You know, the, for example, performance reviews again traditionally rooted in manufacturing related organizations, right? Once a year, you get a performance review. You know, you as the employee hate it. You know, your boss hates to do it. It takes forever. What? If, and it's the same question. How did you do this last year? What can change? How can I better support you? Blah blah blah. And oh, by the way, here's your three and a half percent, you know, cost of living raise. Yeah. So it was very meaningless. Nowadays, the more the more effective conversation is not a review, but what we call career conversations. And rather than happening once a year, it should be happening, you know, ideally monthly, but that can be tough if you have a big team, but at least quarterly. Having a, a 15, 20 minute conversation, it's not a review. It's simply the leader saying, hey, how are things going? What are you seeing that we can adjust or change to make your job easier? Um, what's been happening? What are some of the challenges that you've been having? You know, what, yeah. what, are your, what are your new long-term career goals? Do you see yourself here in the same company three years from now in the same role two years from now? Or is your goal to get to get to X level? Let's figure out how we can help you get to that point. Those career conversations don't take a lot of extra time, but they go a very, very long way. And you're much less likely to lose your A players if they feel connected, if they feel engaged, if they feel heard. Uh, and that's where those conversations come into play. So communication is what it's all about. And that will alleviate a good portion of the problems that companies have. Yeah, that's an awesome answer. I was going to ask, uh, can you elaborate on communication? Just because uh-huh. we do hear, especially from from a relationship perspective, communication okay. is the number one most important thing you can do. Right. Uh, but you you really colored on on what CEO leaders and founders can do to communicate with their teams. Right. So if they do have, let's say, a much bigger team, would you say would you say it's better to have like the the leadership team? They the CEO directly talks with them, and then they have monthly meetings with their team or do you still recommend the CEO? Like at what point should the yeah, CEO sure. stop talking to everybody in the company? <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, I'm sure your, your father is probably already beginning to experience this. When you get to 50, hundred employees, that's really tough to do. Yeah. It's nationwide too. It's, it's very interesting yeah. like how right. the virtual world has allowed for a greater access to talent, right. but the communication part is, um, you know, I, I, as I'm sure you know, chatting over Teams is not the same as a face-to-face right. conversation. Exactly. So. exactly. Yeah. I, I keep saying that in-person is always the best. 
phone is the worst and, you know, kind of virtual Zoom is, is kind of in between. Um, but but to your point, there are things that you can do even as your company grows. You can have, you know, pod conversations where, you know, you take a group of, of employees, maybe at the same same level in different departments, for example. Mm. So the, the, the top five or 10 managers or whatever it might be, yeah. right? Uh, and have that conversation with them about the same thing. Let's talk about what you're looking for. And the more that a leader exhibits open communication and vulnerability, the more likely their employee base is at any level, the more likely they are to communicate any concerns and share those kind of conversations also. Have you ever watched the show Undercover Boss? on? CNN? Yeah, I used to love right. that show. I love that show, right? But it's amazing to see how often these CEOs of a wide variety of companies will go out into the field, right, in, in, you know, in, in costume, right, incognito, to try to get a sense for what's really happening. And they may say they have a, quote, unquote, open line of communication, but until they're out actually in the field with their frontline people, they have no idea what's going on. And so that communication can really be, it can really enhance that visibility also. So, yeah, so it depends. I mean, if you're, if you're running, you know, IBM or Microsoft or, or Netflix, you know, they, they can't yeah. meet everybody every month, but you can do pods and you can make sure that you empower your lieutenants, so to speak, that are running those smaller groups, you know, to do the same thing. Doesn't need to be the CEO every time, but the directors need to meet with managers. The VPs need to meet with directors, right? Yeah. The the C-suite folks need to meet with their VPs, and so it trickles up and down. But that communication has to happen to be effective these days. Yeah, I totally agree. Yeah. Uh, now, now changing directions a little bit on the conversation. Uh, let's talk about your routines and any habits you have. <laughs> uh, do you have a a sort of daily routine that guides your day? Yeah, you know, honestly, I I, I wish I did. <laughs> I think I would be a little bit more more sane sometimes. Um, it it, re- it really varies. I mean, and honestly, you know, I'm joking aside. I really like the variety. One of the reasons that I, yeah. one of the things I love about recruiting is that no two days are the same. It, it, sometimes, you know, over the course of a ten hour day, I'll have five different, six different things that I did over ten hours. Wow. Uh, so I like that variety, but it does make it difficult at times to have a routine. Um, you know, as I mentioned, I, I joked earlier that, you know, I'm, I'm a, a night person, right? And so, you know, I do a lot of work in the evenings from nine until midnight. I, I, I don't go to bed before midnight, no matter what. Uh, early morning is tough for me, but I'll make it happen if I need to. So my routine, I, I like to get seven hours of sleep. That's ideal for me. Six hours I can handle, but not for too many days in a row. Yeah. Uh, I'm more of a workout in the morning kind of person, or I'll go to the gym in the morning if at all possible, uh, and I'll do that. Uh, I try, I try to um, break up my day. So I'm spending some time in more reactive mode, um, you know, responding to email and, and my team, those kinds of things. And then I'll switch gears to be more proactive. That might be reaching out to my team to talk about certain things that are coming up, or it might be talking to my marketing team about a new campaign we're going to put out there, uh, or it's reaching out to clients, legacy clients of, of ours we've had for a long time, yeah. uh, those kinds of things. So I try to balance the reactive and the proactive for sure. I like that a lot. Yeah. And exercise is really important to me. So we're, I've, I've always worked from home. I started the company 15 years ago. We've been virtual since day one, but, and there are times where I can't go outside because it's, you know, too hot or raining or whatever. Um, so I'll do things. I'll, I'll get up and I'll just walk up and down the stairs for 10 minutes, right? It's just getting a break and getting those juices flowing and yeah. the endorphins going. And then I can come back and be a little refreshed and then, you know, tackle the next thing in front of me. I think that's really cool. The the splitting up reactive and proactive. It is important to to kind of have a clear line in the sand between the two. 
mm-hmm. um, just because th- they involve such different types of thinking, like the strategic thinking ahead versus day to day, like right. have, being in the weeds and, and operating in that way. Uh, I also, I'm a big fan of the random walks throughout the day. They, they really help me. I've never tried the stairs thing, but Hey, I might have to give it a shot. And I set set a 10 minute timer and go up and down the stairs. Exactly. Well, my, my, my dog appreciates all the walks too. So it's, (laughs) it's easier to get a walk in when you say, Oh, the dog needs to go out for 20 minutes, which is great too. And I'm, I'm, I'm a very visual person too. So part of my day is making sure that I'm completing the tasks that are, that are literally in front of me, written on, on my notepad or my whiteboard or what have you. Uh, so that's very helpful from that perspective. And for me, you know, a big part of it was just acknowledging that some days are going to be more proactive than others. Right. Yeah. If I, if I come into very a Monday true. thinking I'm going to have a very strategic Monday, you know, I'm kidding <laughs> myself, right? Cause Monday is kind of catching up from things that you didn't do over the weekend or that didn't get done this past, the past week. Uh, and it takes about half the day to kind of get caught up, at least for me, it does. And so it's not until, you know, one or two o'clock in the afternoon on a Monday am I really starting to get into those more proactive activities. So I got to make sure that I'm, I'm fair to myself uh, to, to, to realize that. Yeah, that's a really good point. I, I didn't even think because like I've, I've played around with the idea. I haven't actually tried it yet, but I'm glad you're saying this because it... Um, so what it is, is I've, I've thought of like trying to figure out, okay, I, I do a lot of... I try to plan my days and my weeks on what I want to get done. Mm-hmm. So I have thought of having days where I'm like, you know what? Tuesday is going to be my forward thinking day. Like right, Tuesday sure. <laughs> is going to be the day where, where I want to work on like future planning for stuff, mm-hmm. like marketing plans for the podcast, let's say, for example. Right. Um, and it just doesn't work that way. Like I think that's why I haven't done it yet is because any, like most weeks, not to say that I'm reacting every single day, but every day involves some form of reacting to right. things that happen. Every yeah, yeah. You're, you're not just going to have a day in, in isolation mm-hmm. unless you yeah. like shut everything off and leave and do it yourself. Yeah. You're you're generally like yeah. stuff's going to happen at work, stuff's going to happen uh, at home with friends, family. Like things just pop up. Right. Yeah, so, and I, think, I mean, and to your point, and and at least for me, it's, this is true. Having having a, a, a priority list, if you will. So that I'm not, you know, I, I'm, I'm not treating, you know, things that are less important as I am things that are really important, right? And so you have to have that priority list and keep it top of mind all the time. So for example, as a recruiter, as you might expect, you know, I get people coming to me, you know, 10, 15 people a day that are candidates that are saying, hey, Ken, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, you know, kick my lawn, my, my job search into high gear or, hey, Ken, I just got laid off. Can you help me out? And I don't want to ignore those folks. But the reality is, while they're important to our business, they are not revenue-producing activities, right? I I need to talk to a company. Very true. A company is going to hire me to then fill the positions, and then I'll go out to those candidates and obviously talk to them about the role. But if I am always responding to the candidate side nonstop, I will use up most of my time in those activities when I have to make sure that I focus on the client side. And so I typically will reserve you know, kind of a, a Wednesday or for, and or Friday for those candidate conversations. And I'll say, here's a, I'll send a link and say, great, you know, I'm already booked up this week. Here's a link to my calendar. Go ahead and lock in a time for us to talk for 30 minutes, you know, the week of, you know, the 10th or whatever it is. Uh, and so those, those kinds of you know, kind of quasi time blocking, if you will, or prioritizing yeah. um, what's it, what's most important to us. I have to do that. Otherwise, I'll, I will end up doing things that are great for other people, but not as good for my business. Yeah, setting. I, I totally agree. I like that you do the time blocking thing for yeah. in the future, just so that you have, you're like, right. okay, these will be the times like this is an important task. 
And it's something that I do need to do, but it's not my number one revenue generating priority. And I think that's really, that's a really good separation to have. And uh, just what I've been noticing very recently is uh, listeners will recognize, I've been saying a lot lately that one of the best things that I could do and have been doing is the night before Mm -hmm. uh, just writing out the things I have to do for the next day and then having that to-do list ready. That is hands down one of the best things I can do because it gives me this sense of, it gives me the ability to say no. It lets me, number one, know what I have to do that day and I'll feel accomplished. I get all Mm -hmm. this done. Don't always, but I know know generally. But the saying no, you have to know what you can say no to throughout your days. Or or not even no, but not right now. Exactly. And it has helped so much for me being able to, if I get an assignment that's not due right away, Mm -hmm. being able to say, hey, I I can do that tomorrow. But right now, like it'll be on my to-do list. It's definitely written down, but for tomorrow. Exactly. Uh, and, and, and And I love that. That's a great point. And, and I, you know, and, and back to the whole point about communication too, it's important for the, the people that are giving you those tasks, right? If you're working for somebody else, you know, they need to understand your priority list also. And so it's asking mm-hmm. them, you know, thanks for asking for, for this request or whatever, you know, what's the timeline for this? Because for the person that's asking you to do something, you know, their timeline is always now a sense of urgency, but they need to understand that you might have other things on your plate that m- might have a higher priority, Right. Uh, I had one, somebody once said to me, you know, don't become a check mark on somebody else's to-do list, which is all you're really doing if you're just responding to everybody else's requests without being more proactive. So it's really important to, to ask them, hey, I have other things going on right now. Is this really urgent or not? I have to ask my team that all the time. They'll say, hey, Ken, can you, can you give us this marketing information or, you know, a quote for this article, whatever it is? And I'll say, all right, is this a sense of urgency thing? You need it right now or when do you need it by because um, everything can't be a number one priority. You have to make a list. One feedback that I've gotten from my manager is that I could do a better job of sharing what's on my to-do list because just uh-huh. the nature of my job, I work with people outside of just my area. I work with uh, like different, uh, I just get assigned different projects from, from sure. different areas. And sometimes I, I don't do the best job of passing along what's on my plate. So my manager doesn't have an accurate read. Then right. when things are put on, like extra things are added, I, I feel a little underwater. Right. Uh, what, yeah, exactly. What's something I could do better to communicate with my leaders about that? That's a good question. Yeah, I mean, again, it's, I keep saying back to communication, but you know, one of the things that comes to mind is you, you know, on, on a Friday afternoon, you know, letting the people know that are your the, the folks that are going to be giving you you know tasks over the over the, mm-hmm. the next week. Say, hey, by the way, here's my here's my game plan. Here are my priorities for next week. Let me know if I need to change any of these things, like or that. if you expect a new task or a new project to come online that I need to make sure I fit into my schedule. But here's what I'm planning on doing next week. I'd love to hear your feedback. Right. So, so I mean, a it'll it'll help you prioritize things. B it'll, like you said, make sure uh, ensure that they know what you're doing. And yeah. C again, it'll help you build that relationship with those other leaders out there. Because now you're having ongoing dialogue, where it's, which is keeping you engaged with them and vice versa, and they know what you're working on. So I think it could be a, a good, a good uh, approach to take. That's sweet. Yeah, I really appreciate that. Yeah. Um, and and now to get to the exciting part, I <laughs> I really I really want to know. Uh, so so your hobby. One thing is you're a really big movie buff, and you yes. have over 600 DVDs in your house. 
Yes, exactly. I'm very old school. I like physical DVDs. Ken, I was going to say, why do you still have DVDs? I didn't know they still made DVD players. <laughs> they do, actually. I know. It's kind of crazy. Hard, hard to believe it's not everything streaming. Um, yeah, I, yeah, I've always collected them. I'm, I'm a big movie person. I Actually, I really enjoy watching the behind the scenes and deleted scenes on oh, nice. that you don't usually get to see when you yeah. watch streaming. Because uh, it's just, I, I think it's really interesting and, and exciting to hear about how they did this scene or how this came up or, you know, this this dialogue changed for this reason or what have you. So, uh, yeah, I really enjoy movies and I've always collected movies. I have, I actually have a box of VHS tapes. That was my, my next guys. question. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, VHS. Yeah, you know, the classics, Godfather, Star Wars, all those yeah. on video as well. Um, oh, that's so, sweet. Yeah, it's in the same place where my cassette tapes are. So, you know, again, I'm I'm Gen X, so. <laughs> yeah, so, so what kind of... Um... No, well, I guess what attracts you to movies so much? What what makes you like six hundred's a lot? That's that's not your average movie watcher. Like right. I love watching movies, and I'm not probably not even close to there. Like, what about movies do you love so much? Yeah, it's a good question. I think well, I mean, as a kid, you know, when I, again growing up in the '80s, it was when all the big oh, those summer good, good time for movies. Yeah, yeah, the, all it was it was the the advent, if you will, of the summertime blockbusters with you know Star Wars and Jaws and Close Encounters of the Third Kind and. Indiana Jones and all those things, right? So going to the movies with, my, in my case, my family, my sister and my parents, you know, was a big deal. We'd go yeah. on vacation and every summer we had, you know, something to go see. So that's where it kind of started. And then now as an adult, I really, I, I see so many examples of, of life playing out in a movie, right? And seeing <laughs> different perspectives and, and there's so much great content out there these days that it's very cathartic. I mean, there have been a lot of times where I'll, my wife will go to bed early or I just need to unwind. And so I'll go to the movie theater by myself at 10 o'clock on a Wednesday and see something because it's a great way for me to unwind and disconnect and also helps to kind of refresh my perspective, if you will, seeing how somebody else portrays a story. So uh, it's just been very, very fascinating, but also very therapeutic for me as well. And it's just it's entertaining. It's just a lot. Yeah. Of fun. Yeah. What is that saying? Uh, life imitates art or art imitates yes, life? Right. One, one or the other. It's right, kind right, of both right. and one and the same. It is but... very much the both. Yeah, exactly. You know, yeah. Like, yeah. And then and plus these days, I mean, it's uh, because of, of streaming content and, and the web, obviously, um, you know, it's easier to talk with other people about the content that they're watching. If you, if you watched last night was the Emmy Awards, right? Uh, and the majority of the winners were from non-traditional broadcasts. They weren't from mm-hmm. ABC or CBS, right? Or, or um, um, uh, NBC. And so it was all from HBO Max or it was from Netflix or Amazon Prime, whatever. So there's just so much great content out there. So many more stories are being told through movies yes. or, or series um, that it's, it's a wonderful time to be, to, to be a, a movie buff for sure. Yeah, it really is. And I, and I like how you uh, go to movies on your own. That was one thing that I, I did um, mm-hmm. in, the, in the journey to, for me to, to know myself and be, right. be more cool being on your own is yeah. I remember I, for a while, like I didn't, it wasn't like I didn't go to the movies on my own for a reason. Like I just never really saw yeah. the need. Right, and sure. one day there was a movie. It was uh, Avengers Endgame, I believe. Uh-huh. I really wanted to watch it. Like oh, I yeah. have seen the entire like Avengers movie series all the way through. And mm-hmm. this was like the last one and no one was really available. And I was like, I don't care. I'm watching yeah, this movie. Exactly. Right. Sat there. It was one of the most pleasant experiences. You know, you get your drink, your popcorn, yeah, you're fun. there hanging exactly. out at the theater. Yeah, no, I, I agree. And I, I think there are, you know, as on a movie, people in the movie business will say the same thing. There are certain movies that are truly meant to be seen on a big screen with that complete, you know, fully immersed experience. 
right? Well, I mean, that was one of them. They're, they're about to re-release Avatar in the theaters uh, later this month, right? Avatar is, is a great example to see that in the theater. It's wonderful to see it on your on your 55 or 60 inch TV at your house, sure. But you know, see it in the theater where everything is dark and you've got that huge screen and the great sound system. Uh, that's a great example of a movie that that should be experienced in the theater, just like Avengers, Endgame, and um, you know, Infinity Wars. And I'm a, I'm a huge Marvel fan too, so I yeah, love seeing all those. Yeah. What are What are your thoughts on this uh, Phase Four that's been happening? <laughs> uh, yeah, that's a good question. I, 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 I like it overall. I will say I'm getting a little bit of fatigue, you know, yeah. after, after the, at the end of every Marvel movie, then they, of course, set up the next one. And I, I was said to my, my wife, we, we went and saw uh, Thor uh, Love and Thunder, which I loved. But then there's, of course, the usual end credit scene, right, where it sets up the next one. And I turned to her and I was like, you know what, I, I would like there to be an actual ending to a movie where it just ends. You're like, I'm okay, it's done. <laughs> I don't need to think about what's coming next. I just want this movie. Yeah. movie. It was a great story. You did a good job telling it. Funny, great, great effects, whatever. But let's just end it. Um, so there's a little bit of that. But but that being said, honestly, I love all the Disney Plus stuff and Marvel and Star Wars, all the series. Uh, I just love that stuff too. So, you know, over, overall, I'm a fan. <laughs> yeah, to me, it, it feels like this this phase four doesn't feel as uh, as well mapped out. It doesn't feel as like... Mm-hmm. Yeah. What is the word? I don't know. Purposeful? Like, yeah, not sure. As, right. It's a little you, more disjointed. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of yeah. like they're, they're just trying a whole bunch of different content. Right. Uh, whereas before they had a very clear, like in the end comes Thanos and then yeah, they, exactly. they all band together and fight like that kind of thing. It was, I um, mean, it, it's honestly, it's really difficult to, to f- find a, 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 an equivalent follow on after infinity wars and Endgame, in my opinion, those were just, yeah. I could watch those two movies, you know, a gazillion times. And I have, and I, I just love it every time because they're just, you know, they're it was like they're 12 years in the making. Like oh, they, no, they spaced yeah. it. Yeah. yeah. I've, I, <laughs> I've seen yeah. the entire series twice, like of those movies, yeah, like phase yeah. one through three. So I, yeah, I don't know awesome. what it is about those movies, but big fan. Yeah. yeah and I think, I mean, and, and to your question from a little while ago about, you know, what is it about movies that I like, you know, and, and, you know, equating that to being a business owner and an entrepreneur, but really any, any, you know, business professional out there, Thinking about Marvel and what you know, what they do and what Kevin Feige has done to think so far in advance and be so strategic and say, "I'm going to do Iron Man in you know 20 years ago, whatever it was, 15 years ago now, uh, and here we are now, all these years later, and the arc continues to to work through every movie." So, from a business perspective, you can think, "Okay, so what's my end game?" Right? No, no, no pun intended. Yeah. <laughs> what's, what's my goal as a business? Do, do I want to sell the business? Do I want to go public? Do I want to, you know, have my employees buy me out? Do I want to pass it off to my my kids? You know, what is my end game, right? Yeah. And that's that will that will affect the decisions that you make today based on where you want to be three, five, ten, twenty years from now. Yeah, I totally agree, Ken. One thing that comes to mind is I love the amount of massive bets they placed on themselves early on. Right. Because right. Marvel, like, if we think about what was going on back in the early two thousands. Marvel was being blown out by DC. Like that was just a given. They had never been in competition so bad to where they had to sell their three top highest, the rights to their superheroes. So the big famous one we know is Spider-Man, but then it was also X-Men and the Fantastic Four. Right. So Marvel took a look at who they had and they decided to make Iron Man, who on paper is not (laughs) the favorite superhero. He's he's like a really smart dude with a a suit, but everyone's expecting like Superman 
or or Batman or Spider-Man, like people with powers. This guy didn't yeah. have a power. He's just really smart. Yeah. And they they placed a really big bet on themselves for that. And then on Robert Downey Jr., who at the time had just gotten out of rehab, who was facing right. a lot Again. of back right. yes. Yeah. Facing a lot of backlash. Yeah. And it was just the number one, the foresight to to the execution afterwards and the amount of yeah, big I bets agree. they placed on themselves yeah. uh, really played out so well to where, yeah, part of part of me while watching it is constantly thinking like damn, how did they pull this off? Yeah, exactly. Well, and again, I, I agree 100%. And again, hearkening back to what it's like in business, you have to be willing to take risks, right? You're not going to get very far if you just you know, go the safe route and maintain status quo. You've got to take some risks out there. Uh, and, and that's what about movies also that I love. You think about wonderful movies like, like Goodwill Hunting, right? Mm-hmm. Where it was you know Matt Damon and, and Ben Affleck wrote it. And they went to over 100 different studios before they finally got one to say yes. Um, and Robin Williams, you know, he wasn't always going to be the person for that, that lead role. So you think about amazing movies that almost never got made because A, uh, studios weren't willing to take a risk. Yeah. And B, if the, if the, the content developers weren't so resilient and didn't have that perseverance and weren't willing to hear 99 no's before they finally got a yes, then we never would have seen that on the big screen. It's the same with business, right? If I hadn't have decided to you know, launch my own company 15 years ago, I wouldn't have the amazing team that I have now with Correct. amazing clients and great organizations, the chance to talk to people like you, things I've learned from my dealings with my clients also, I wouldn't have gotten any of that if I didn't take a chance. Not, not every risk is going to pay off. You're going to make some mistakes and do some failures along the way a lot in, in my case, right? <laughs> but at the same time, you learn from them. And, but it doesn't, it doesn't change the fact that I'm still taking risks even today, 15 years later. Yeah. And I think touching back on what you were saying, how there are so many different studios and so many different content creators for these TV shows and movies now, uh, I believe that not, not to say the risk goes down, but the opportunity like surface level, like the amount of opportunities available kind of goes up with Mm -hmm. the increase instead of you, you have to go to like one of the big three networks and it has to go through like who, who knows who, which producers. (laughs) Now you can kind of, there there are more ways to pitch your idea and have these stories go. And we're, we're seeing it play out pretty well for some of these, especially like HBO, Apple TV, Right. Uh, and some, some of those players. Yeah. And it's the same with the, with the music industry. My, my youngest son is a, a junior in college is, to become a sound engineer, audio engineer in sound production is his, his major. And we talk about this all the time. You know, it used to be, you know, it's even, even eight years ago, 10 years ago, a lot of musicians were found through YouTube, right? Which, mm-hmm. is, which is incredible. So now Justin Bieber got found. Right. Exactly. Now it's, now it's TikTok. Right. So again, yep. it's not a traditional, you know, um, uh, recording label that's finding people right They're They're signing them once they already have a good following. But that following was very organic and it just happened to, to blow up because someone has a great voice or a good presence, you know, in front of the camera, whatever it is. Um, so there's a lot more platforms and to your point, opportunities for artists out there, whether it's musicians, whether it's actors, whether it's, you know, writers. Uh, or, you know, folks that are painting or whatever they're doing with, with the NFTs, whatever it might be, digital or otherwise, there's a lot more opportunity, but you also have to cut through the noise and you've got to get yourself noticed. And that's where marketing is such an important aspect of that too. Yeah. I, I love that you said that. Um, number one, I want this out there on air. We can have this dated. 
I've been saying the music industry is the next big like entertainment industry that's going to have like a <laughs> massive shakeup. It's right, just right. like the the record labels have just way too much control and ownership and power on what happens to these artists right. that uh, independent artists are coming up. And I see that because I think it's really cool what uh, your son's doing because that's what my brother, he went to college to study sound engineering, like audio oh. engineering. Yeah. And now he's a, he's a music artist. So he's oh. been actually like growing through TikTok and has been like talking to some pretty cool people uh-huh. out in LA through this platform. And wow. he has said that he specifically wants to go the solo route. Like he doesn't really mm-hmm. want to go through record labels that much just because of they do take. Right. It's not just what they take <laughs> money wise. It's the ownership of your IP yeah, of your, your music, IP, your exactly, songs. Right. That that's yeah. that's kind of tough. But yeah. well, look at what Taylor yeah. Swift has done. I mean, she's she has turned the industry on its ear several times. Most recently, just deciding, okay, if I, if I don't have control over my masters, fine, I'm going to re-release these songs. I'm going to change them up a little bit, and yeah. now it's a whole new album that actually did better than the first album. That yeah, that's such a baller move. Um, yeah, it's, I mean, and not everybody can do that. She obviously has, you know, has the leverage to do it, yeah. but. As people like her start to do that and support that kind of a move and that kind of independence, that just frees up, you know, the, the folks that are that are just now starting to come up. It frees them up to do things a different way and not have to go the same old route. And your experience with music, you've been picking up the banjo lately. How's that going? <laughs> yes, it's it's behind me here in my office. Uh, it's it's great. I, again, it's just it's kind of like a movie for me, right? You just, I pick it up. It, I spend fifteen, whatever, thirty minutes doing it every every so often. Yeah. And you know, I'm I can't read music. I just kind of play by ear, or whatever it might be. I just I've always loved the sound of the banjo. And you know, I, when I when I turned fifty, my wife got me a banjo for my birthday, and uh, I just I just love it. So it's it's a great outlet. It's fun. And again, I think it you know it, it breaks up the the um, the metric driven activities that I'm involved in every day as a business owner. You know, looking at numbers and strategy and marketing campaigns and sales, all that kind of stuff. When I sit down with a banjo, even for 15 minutes, it just releases all of that. And I'm just strumming away, trying to make a decent sound. And uh, it's just, it's very freeing. Yeah, I love that. That's exactly why I play music as well. I huh? The banjo is, I, I'm a big fan of string instruments. I play huh? guitar, ukulele, bass. Oh, bass wow. is my, my main favorite one. Yeah. Banjo is next on the list. Like, yeah. I love that thing. I love... I haven't been the biggest country fan in the world. Yeah. Like I'm not against it. I just it's not my choice when I pick it up. Right. However, I do really like and listen to bluegrass country. I'm the same way. <laughs> pretty frequently because of the banjo. I think it is a fantastic instrument. I think there's so much that you can do with it. Uh also the banjo lele. I don't know if you ever heard that, but it's like no, a ukulele no. and a banjo mix. Oh, wow. It's like a the size of a ukulele. But the okay. shape, like the circle shape uh-huh. of a banjo, and it has. I haven't like, heard of that. Oh, interesting! Yeah. Check it out. Okay, banjo lately. Wow. It's yeah. really cool. Yeah, and um, I'm also a big fan of Steve Martin as well. And so we've, you know, based on his nice. movies, but also his stand up, yeah. and I've also seen him perform, you know, with his with his band. And he's he is a world class banjo player, phenomenal. And so seeing him, you know, perform in person and knowing how funny of a person he is in general, but also the banjo playing is just it's very inspirational. I'm looking up the. Uh, yeah, I'm still looking for my someone from yeah. the early episodes remembers I joked that I need an assistant. I'm still looking for one <laughs> so that I can look stuff up on the show. But uh, Steve okay. Martin's uh band, the song On the Water, mm. was a, a Steep Canyon Rangers with yeah, Steve Martin's. Yeah, right. That band, that group with oh my god, is really good. Yeah, yeah I've I have Incredible. that's funny you mentioned him because he's he's a fantastic yeah. banjo player. I'm like really, really good. Yeah. And I mean I mean 
who would have thought a, a comedian actor like him who came up the way he did in the 70s is also a world-class banjo player. It just does not seem to go together. That's like Hugh Jackman as, you know, as Wolverine. You're like, how can one person look that great, you know, act so well, be so, you know, so athletic, but also be an incredible singer and an incredible dancer? It's yeah. All, all in one person. It's not fair. <laughs> yeah, he did. He did a great job in, um, what was that one movie that I liked? It's a great entrepreneurial oh, yeah. story. P.T. Barnum, the, right, exactly. the circus yeah. one. Yeah, the show, yeah. The showman, greatest show. Yeah, greatest show. Yeah, right. right. At, um, yeah, P.T. Barnum, if anyone's looking for a story on, on entrepreneurship, mm-hmm. that man really started a circus through like sheer literally, literally, grind yeah, exactly. and hustle. Yeah. Um, yeah. All, and right. all the stories, whether it's Walt Disney or whether it's, you know, all these, I mean, and even people that, you know, started Blockbuster, which is now gone. But, you know, back in the day, Wayne Hazanga was running uh, Blockbuster video and uh, and then hearing about all the missed opportunities, right? Where you think to buy Netflix. Uh, wow. Yeah, right. They could have they could have bought Netflix, right? Or, you know, the the uh, digital cameras that came out and Kodak said, oh, no, you know, well, that'll, that'll never catch on. And so Kodak went out of business, right? So yeah. same kind of thing, not not seeing those trends when they when they come up. Yeah, very true. There's so many other things we could go dive into there. <laughs> but uh, with that, Ken, thank you very much for coming on. It's been such a pleasure talking to you and, and so great to get to know you. Yeah, likewise. Thank you. I appreciate the invitation and, and thanks for the great conversation too. Yeah, we just have a couple closing questions and you actually answered. Yeah, I think you answered two of them. But normally yeah. I ask guests, what kind of music do they listen to? So we talked a little Steve Martin. We can go into that. And the other one is what are your favorite movies you recommend? So that we had a whole section. So we can yeah, chuck exactly. that question away. But what, what music have you been listening to lately? Yeah, you know, it, it really depends. Like movies, it depends on my mood. If you, if you looked at the, I actually have CDs in my car. So that's obviously dating myself. <laughs> um, but I have everything from Eminem to Elton John to Billy Joel to bluegrass music um, to Mumford and Sons and, and you know, Tame Impala. Uh, so I really like everything. I'm not a big fan of, of heavy metal. Um, and like I said, I'm not a huge fan of country, but I love bluegrass as well. So yeah. a, lot, a lot of independent uh, alternative artists are, are big for me as well. Mumford yeah. and Sons does a great job incorporating the banjo. Yeah, uh, I really like, there's this random genre, but I, I, I really like bluegrass indie, like bluegrass mm-hmm. indie music. That's how I actually found the banjo lately is because they... Oh, wow. They, yeah, it's, it's pretty interesting, but, um, what, what kind of books are you reading? Are you a reader? I am. Yeah. I usually read about eight to 10 business books every year. It just depends upon my schedule, but uh, I just finished a, a great book that's uh, actually by, by Jim Collins and, and Bill, La- uh, Bill Lazier. Um, it's called, uh, it's, it's called e, um, Entrepreneur 2.0. Um, and they wrote the book back, original book back in the eighties. And this is actually now the, the new version of it with, you know, the original book, Plus, then there are, you know, 2022 commentary as well, which has been fantastic. I mentioned the book Small Giants uh, by Bo, uh, Bur- Bo Burlingham, I think is his name. That's also a, a great book. Um, Moonshot is wonderful, is, is a very good book also. And uh, so, yeah, just, I, I just pick up books that I find on a regular basis, some that are inspirational. I, I read a lot of um, biographies. Also, I'm reading the biography on uh, autobiography, actually, by Ron Howard and his, and his brother, Clint. Uh, about growing up in the movie business, kind of what they've done. Hmm. Uh, so yeah, so I've got a I'm kind of a, like my music. I have a lot of wide yeah. variety of of books that I tend to read also. Uh, and yeah. then I've been spending time writing my own books. So that's been a, a taken a, a lot of my time over the last you know nine months. Yeah, very true. Uh, very excited for that to come out. Can't Thank wait. You. Thank you. Um, 
And yeah, finally, where can people find you and your company? Um, yeah, thanks for asking. So as you might expect, we're, of course, we're you know, on the net, obviously, at, at turningpointrecruiting.com. Uh, we're very, very active, very big in LinkedIn as well. I'm always happy to be a resource and a sounding board there. Uh, so that's a big place for us, too. And then we have a pretty active YouTube channel where you know, nice. either in, in, interviews that I do like this, and we put that on our YouTube channel, or you know, there are different videos that I shoot every you know, couple every month about trends that I'm seeing on the marketplace. So our YouTube channel is also out there. Awesome. Well, thank you very much, Ken, and uh, hope you have a great productive rest of your day. Thanks so much. Appreciate it. Take care.